If you didn't need the money, would you still show up to your job? I'm John Weems. I've spent half of my career in the corporate world and the other half in full-time spiritual guidance as a pastor. I respect people of all views unless they are totally closed-minded a-holes. I am not here to tell you what to believe. I am here to encourage you to think beyond the check. Welcome to this podcast where we talk about work, life, and the meaning of our time here. You'll hear from a wide range of business people from multiple backgrounds. And my guest today has survived and thrived on Shark Tank. He has founded two successful companies, Erbio and Cutting Edge Studio Enlisted Design. He's designed products for William Sonoma early in his career, and Enlisted has been involved with numerous beautiful products that you have likely seen or used. Uh, listeners, it is my honor today to introduce Bo Euler. Welcome to the program, Bo. Cool. Thanks, John. Good to be with you. So, Bo, let's uh, let's take it back, you know, a little bit further in life for starters and uh, people who maybe haven't had a chance to get to know you. What was your first job? So, my first job was pushing a lawnmower around my neighborhood, um, just hustling my neighbors to mow their lawn. And sometimes I would just do it anyway and then they'd go ask for money. Um, but what I always wanted to do is I wanted to be a professional surf photographer so I could travel the world and surf every day and take pictures of my buddies. Yeah. Do you still surf? I do. Yeah. From time to time. Yeah. And where's, where's one of your favorite surfing destinations? Uh, just where I grew up, Carmel. Yeah. Yeah. Just love the Carmel beach there. It's a great wave. I get down there as often as I can. Yeah. And heading into college, you know, what, what kind of, you know, when did you give up on, uh, uh making surfing a uh, profession and surf <laughs> photography? What, uh, what shifted into college? So I wasn't going to go to college and a good friend of mine, I was, I was talking with him about kind of mapping out the next few years. And, uh, and he, and he looked at me and he said, you're not going to be a surf photographer. You're going to go to school and you're going to find out what you need to be there. And it was a super uh, sobering conversation, but I trusted him. And, and it kind of, instead of being defensive, it kind of steered me on a different path. And so I went to school, uh, first studying fine art painting, um, because I knew I wanted to do something creative, but then I was a little bit too analytical for that. And so then I started studying architecture Mm -hmm. and I enjoyed the, the architecture, but it was, the scale was too large. And so I wanted to create uh, kind of smaller things um, that could hopefully have a meaningful impact in people's lives. Did you have a, sort of a moment of epiphany or, or when you determined that too large of a scale wasn't for you? What I you did. Yeah, I was in architecture class and, and after one of the classes I w- went up to my teacher and I said, hey, you know, I love this. And he's like, yeah, you're doing great. Yada, yada. And, uh, and I said, but I, wanted, I don't want to do things this big. <laughs> and I kind of held my arms out. I want to do things this big. And, um, and he said, oh, that's called industrial design. And so I called my grandpa who, um, had taught at, in college for like 30 years. And I was talking to him and I said, Hey, I, I think I'm going to do this thing called industrial design. He started laughing and I was like, what? And he said, Bo, what do you think I've taught for the last 30 years? (laughs) And so he had been the industrial design lead at, uh, Cal State Northridge down in LA and little did I know these people that I had grown up, you know, working in the shop and, and knowing his students, uh, they owned industrial design studios. And so I guess it was kind of in my blood without ever hearing the, the title industrial design. Yeah, was that a pleasant surprise for him that you had yeah, yeah, this it direction? <laughs> it was great. It was great. And so I uh, just went full steam ahead researching schools and, you know, kind of discovering where to go uh, to take that next step. 
Yeah. So back to, to grandpa's shop, any, yeah. any memories of things that, that you created there? So many memories. Yeah. So he lived in LA. I grew up in Carmel, uh, but there was a period of time in my life where my brother was really sick. Uh, he was uh, about seven and a half, eight years old, and he was dying of AIDS. And so he's being treated at Stanford Hospital. And while he was at Stanford, we spent a lot of time in LA with my grandparents so that my parents could attend to, to my brother, Ben. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we would just make all sorts of different things. We'd make wooden birds that we'd carve out. We'd make things on the bandsaw, like puzzles. You know, he'd have us, my grandma would have us draw a picture on a piece of wood and then we'd cut it out into a puzzle so we could make our own puzzles. And then my grandpa's hobby was, uh, was restoring, um, antique wooden carousel horses. And so we'd help him with his, carousel horses and then he would he would sell those to celebrities and different people in la yeah it was really interesting wow so so you shifted to uh to academy of art yep right and upon graduation what was what was your idea at that point what was your intention with work yeah so so first when i went to the academy for the first time i i wasn't living in california at the time because i was off at school and i flew to san francisco and i walked in and it was like i had come home like I knew that this was my calling for the next four years and this is where I needed to be. And so luckily I got accepted to the school and, uh, and then went through school and, um, and, uh, graduated top of my class. And so I had a few ideas of where I wanted to go. One of which was, um, an agency that's still probably the number one agency in the world. And, and nobody from the Academy had gone to that design agency previously. And so, I, uh, I landed in an interview with them and I sat down at the interview and, um, and it was terrible. <laughs> and I, I stood up from the interview after, after a bit and I thought to myself, I've just worked for the last three and a half years as hard as I possibly could to get a job at that place. And I will never, ever work for that man. Mm. Super degrading. Um, very, uh, just, prideful just kind of rubbed me wrong and so i walked away you know on one hand with my dreams shattered yes and i'm sure if i had pursued it i could have gotten a job there but i didn't want to be around designers that that treated people that way Mm -hmm. and so i opened up my horizons to other studios to really look okay where do i want to go and so i had a number of different opportunities i had already worked like you said for a year and a half with william sonoma while i was in school and so i'd already designed 10 12 products that were on the market and selling well so i was positioned to be able to kind of go where i wanted to go um which is very fortunate and uh and so i got to choose just this small studio called new deal design I think I was the seventh designer uh, at the time. And when I asked them what I would be doing you know, day to day, the owner looks at me and goes, you'll be doing everything. You're going to be on the design team. Mm. It's like, awesome. Done. I'll take it. So I, I accepted the position there and, um, and uh, just had you know, three years of incredible growth there where I was really able to learn from him and have him mentor me on, on how to take these skills that I learned in school and actually become a designer. Yeah. Any, any products that stand out from William Sonoma or New Deal that, that uh, you're especially thankful yeah. to be a part of? Yeah. I mean, if you go to William Sonoma today, there's going to be a set of uh, melamine mixing bowls <laughs> that, that have been 
have been for sale for close to 15 years now and, and they still still sell really really well um, and uh, and that's kind of fun to see yeah. that and then there's been other products uh, throughout the years that you know I've gone to somebody's house and they'll have a certain you know set top box or TV or mixing bowls or barbecue set or you know camera or whatever it is and I'll I'll see it and and you know at first I would say something to my wife like hey look I got that and now I'll just kind of nudge her or she'll nudge me and we won't say anything but it, it's still you know it's really exciting to see um, my products there and it's been fun I've, uh, right now I have two products in the Apple store um, we have uh, constantly products in Costco and Best Buy and mm-hmm. Whole Foods and grocery stores and you know it's fun to go into stores and see our, our work i bet so we'll we'll circle back to some of the specifics in a minute when you know with with the positive experience at new deal uh, when did you know you wanted to start your own firm in school so before i even started at william sonoma or new deal or enlisted um i knew that going to school was going to um, give me the tools that i need to become a designer and that going to really good studios like New Deal would give me the tools to um, to be a designer and to uh, understand how to manage a program, and so all of all of that experience really, I was collecting and asking lots of questions, and I would drive with the owner um, down to San Jose for a client. We'd fly out to a client. I would just pepper him with questions, um, and that's kind of my nature anyway. And then, uh, and then it got to the point where I started doing some work on the side, um, outside of industrial design, between packaging and branding, and seeing that there's this much bigger world of communication and design outside of just industrial design. And uh, and that's when I knew I was like, okay, I need to do something bigger than what I'm doing now. Yeah. I've I've uh, read previously that at that point you were working at least fifty hours at, yeah. at New Deal and then an, another you know forty plus for for your own. So yeah, correct. You, you aren't a guy who needs too much sleep, I guess. <laughs> we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> no, I do need I need do need more sleep, but I don't need a lot. And you're right. So for about two years, um, my my previous business partner and I we did about fifty hours at New Deal and about forty plus hours on our own. So nights and weekends, and we we would have big clients like Nestle come to my apartment, and we'd have reviews in my apartment. Um, it's kind of a crack up when you think about you know how how it actually worked, but yeah, just hustling. Well, obviously something went right. Yeah. So sure. tell me where where does the name Enlisted come from? So I had this experience um, where I a client of mine at a previous job um, called me up and wanted to. Uh, wanted to come sit down and just sketch with me for the day. And that wasn't what we did. And so, um, unfortunately I wasn't able to collaborate with them at that, at that point in that way. And, and I remember walking back to my desk after an interaction with someone at the studio and thinking, you know, there's, there's gotta be a better way. And that better way is, is enlisting our clients into our design team. And likewise, then, um, them enlisting, us as creatives into their business team. And when that type of immersive collaboration happens, um, true co-creation begins. And it's not just, you know, lip service of, yeah, let's collaborate, right? It's really integrating our teams and enlisting each other's minds and services and tools to create a better experience. And what is more of the norm in the industry? The norm is, Bo, you're the designer, you know, John, you're the engineer, you guys go do your jobs, 
and then come together and reveal to each other, you know, what you've created. And so the kind of the gold standard for design is, Hey, we're the designers, right? We're the cool guys. You pay us a bunch of money to go away for three months. We'll decide for you what you need and then we'll come and bestow it upon you. (laughs) And that's where I'm just thinking, you know, at that point, 10 years ago, I was thinking, yeah, there's got to be a better way. These are super smart people. Yes, I'm the designer and the creative. So let's sit down and work this stuff out together. Yes. So I understand uh, you've, you've founded, enlisted. Um, you, you have this, this idea within. Tell me about Urbio and how that got started and the impact of, of Urbio on your path yeah. uh, from there. Yeah, so Enlisted was a relatively small studio for a while. We were just two people and then four, then six. And so in 2010... Let me think. 2010, we had the idea of, um, well, actually, it came out of desperation more than anything. It was business slowed down. And we had about a six-month dry spell where there was hardly any work coming in at all. And so instead of, um, you know, obviously, we worked on business development, but we also said, okay, well, hey, if we can do this branding and packaging and industrial design for our clients, at what point do we do that for ourselves? And so we came up with this idea of uh, this modular kind of indoor garden slash organizational you know, system. And so we designed it out as a group, and we had prototypes made. And then um, that was right when Kickstarter was coming out. And so we learned about Kickstarter, and I mean, it was within the initial months of Kickstarter. And so we launched on Kickstarter, did really, really well. Kickstarter did a little, um, a little kind of... Uh, episode like if you want a successful campaign this is how you do it and they basically showed the Urbio campaign mm-hmm. and so that blew up and then um, shortly after that we were invited to come pitch to the sharks on Shark Tank and so we prepared for that and with each of these kind of steps between Kickstarter Shark Tank and then the actual launch into Container Store and Target and Office Max and all of that um, it brought more and more uh, notoriety to Urbio, but also to Enlisted as the design agency who designed this. And so we ultimately spun off Urbio to be its own business. It grew, and then we sold that. And that allowed me to focus just solely on Enlisted. And uh, and so it really, you know, it put us on the map, for sure. So I, I know you have probably spoken about it hundreds of times or more. Uh, it's a big deal to get on Shark Tank. Talk a little bit about that, how, how it came about. Did, did you pitch them, uh, vice versa? How, yeah. you know, how did that life-changing experience come about? Yeah, so I'll tell you exactly what happened. We're sitting in a, in a board meeting for Urbio, and one of our board members and early investors, great guy, um, he's sitting there in the meeting on his phone. Okay, so, and so after a little while, I turned on, I'm like, hey, what are you doing? He says, oh, sorry, I'm just texting with Mark Cuban. And I'm like, all right, you, you can text away. Go ahead. But why don't you tell him about Urbio? And so he does. And about two minutes later, Cuban responds to his text. He says, whoa, that looks super cool. Would be great for the tank. And that's all we ever did. That's all he did. About 48 hours later, I got a call from a producer. And that producer grilled me for about two hours on the phone. Uh, the business model, the um, it, my viewership of Shark Tank, and you were already an avid viewer. I was I understand absolutely, yes. yeah. So my wife and I had watched it yes. almost every Friday night for like two, three years, yes. and and I would sit there and think to myself, like one day I'm going to be on that show. And so when the producer called, it was he was really vetting me to see if if you know if I was the real deal, and uh, and evidently passed. And so 
what it means to pass that call is it means that you can now apply for Shark Tank. So we applied one of 24,000 applications that year. Our application got through. And, uh, and so we went into a three-month process with other producers of preparing us for the potential to present to the, to the sharks. So after about three months, we got word that we were going to be able to present to them. We went to LA, we built out a whole you know, display and everything, got to go on and present to the, to the sharks. And we went into our minute and a half pitch at the beginning and, and it, the show's legit. Like those guys have no idea what's coming out of, out of the, the tank. Mm. And so it's all new pitch. But because Cuban had heard of us, he didn't know anything other than he had heard of us. As soon as we stopped our minute and a half pitch, he goes, whoa, whoa, wait, guys, before you go into everything, these guys have already approached me. So I know a little bit more about them than any of you do. So for that reason, I'm out. Mm. And we wanted Cuban to mm-hmm. invest in RPO. <laughs> and so we were a little shocked. Um, but almost immediately, the other sharks started jumping in with questions. But then quickly that turned into them bidding against each other for um, uh, f- for the company. And so they raised our valuation in their bids against each other. And ultimately, we partnered with Lori Grenier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and the show became one of their most viewed shows. So it was in syndication. Uh, it still is in syndication. So it's on every three to six months. It was on all the United flights, yes. international and domestic. Um, and so it's been really good, really good for the company. What, what impact did that have on, on sales and exposure? Huge. So within the first, I don't even know, days we had, we went from like $20,000 in sales to over a hundred thousand dollars in sales and it helped us seal the deal with uh, the container store. And Erbia now, four or five years later, is still in a dedicated end cap at container store. does really well. Um, so it was, it, was, it was wonderful. And people email me or call me um, often, I would say monthly, and ask, hey, do you think I should go on Shark Tank? The answer is yes. You should go on Shark Tank. Yes. <laughs> you have 10 million viewers listening to you present your product. Of course you should. Right. So to the extent you're at liberty to discuss, after the hugs on the show, you, you make deals. Is it all kumbaya and they hand you a suitcase full of money? <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> so um, after the show, we negotiated with Lori for about five months. Um, the terms were absolutely ridiculous. Uh, no, I, I could see no way that it was going to work between us. And so we ended up not taking her cash and, um, and honestly not needing it after mm-hmm. the show. And then we parted ways. So we never actually worked with her. So you've, you've taken this big leap of faith. You've, you've founded your own firm. You've started a company from within the firm. Let's, let's shift to a key to, to this program, mm-hmm. and that's our faith, our spirituality. Uh, right. Tell us a little bit about your faith, Bo. Yeah, so I, my faith really consists for me um, with my belief that I'm a son of God and that I... I have this yearning for a closeness with my heavenly father, with my, my God. And so my faith, uh, is somewhat structured in the sense that I'm a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mm -hmm. very active member. Uh, for the last five years, I served as bishop of my congregation and in Walnut Creek and, uh, and loved the experience. It was probably one of the hardest experiences of my life and certainly one of the most uh, rewarding experiences for me and for my family. Um, so that's kind of on the structured side with mm-hmm. faith and religion. And then faith, um, just the pure faith really 
comes into play with uh, just my total reliance on God. Where, yes, of course I have to set my alarm, wake up, and you know work my butt off all day. But just total reliance on and humility and the understanding that, um, that I need Him. I need His direction. I need His uh, confidence. I need His... Um, his counsel in pretty much everything that I do. And so I just kind of have this constant pride, humility check, right? Where it's like, okay, am I seeking God? Am I living in a way that's going to allow me to be close to, to God and receive that companionship that I so desperately need in my personal life and my religious life and my faith life and my work life? So you referenced five years as bishop, and for those yeah. not as familiar with the structure, uh, there there are not you know paid clergy or staff in local wards. Tell us about your experience and what, what kind of a commitment yeah. is that on on top of work and family and everything else in your in your life? Yeah, so in the Mormon Church, there's no paid clergy, and so we all um, give of our time and our talents and everything that God's blessed us with. And so when I was 33 years old. Um, my uh, priesthood leader uh, called me and said, hey, we'd like to come visit with you and your wife. I said, sure, come on over. <laughs> and um, and they came over and, and sat down and, uh, and asked if we would be willing to serve in this capacity. My dad had served as bishop when he was that age. When he was 32, he was called as a bishop. Hmm. And um, it was he was called about three months after my brother Ben died of mm-hmm. AIDS. And so this very powerful and um, devastating time in our lives as kids where my brother died and then immediately my dad was called to be bishop. And, and in hindsight, we saw that, that that brought many blessings to our family that we desperately needed. So um, so I knew that this could be a really good thing, and um, and yet it was a very humbling thing. Mm. And uh, to be in a position where the the bishop is the father of the ward, and sets the spiritual tone for the for the ward for the congregation, and manages all of the callings, which are all of the other service positions. So you're looking at fifty to sixty other service positions in order to keep a ward of say two hundred members. Um, functioning and the bishop is responsible for all of that and so it's about uh, 20 hours a week um, give or take 5 or 10 hours <laughs> yes. um, give or take a little bit uh, and then on top of that is the counseling so counseling ward members with challenges that they're going through faith crises um, challenges in their family and their marriage, uh, divorces, um, abuse, um, legal issues, you know, just so many issues mm. that our members face in, on a day-to-day basis. And so they go to their bishop for counsel as, as somebody who is close to God and who can help them kind of navigate these waters and, and turn to Christ. Having been through such a, a tragic time losing Ben, mm-hmm. how did that impact your faith and, and your ability to minister to others? So the Ben experience was life-changing. One of the most life-changing experiences I had, and and I was fortunate to have it at a young age, so it set a tone throughout my life. So you were how old at the time? I was seven and a half okay. when he died. Okay. So I was about five and a half, six, when he was diagnosed with AIDS. He was the first boy to ever be treated at Stanford Hospital. Mm. So this is like 1985, okay. right, when AIDS was really this unknown thing. 
and we're hemophiliacs in our family. So mm-hmm. we have bleeding disorder where we need to take an IV and um, in order for our blood to clot. And so the medicine um, had AIDS and mm. it had HIV. And so um, my brother contracted AIDS and, and, uh, and ultimately died from it. And that experience taught me a few things. And I give credit to my parents for really um, not just keeping it together, but for seeing teaching opportunities to the three other boys in our family um, that families can be together forever. Mm-hmm that God has a plan and that God loves us regardless of the situation that we're in. Yes. And maybe because the situation we're in. And, um, and so that set the tone for my life of, um, incredible, um, empathy, Mm. um, sympathy for those who are going through things that I hadn't experienced and empathy for people who had experienced such catastrophic experiences in their life. Um, around the same time, um, other really you know, difficult things happened in my life that gave me even more empathy. And so, um, and so as I serve as bishop or served as bishop and now in, in other callings, I've, I've seen that I need to approach people with an understanding. You know, somebody that I look up to said once, he said, um, if you meet everybody you if you treat everyone you meet as though they're in some type of danger, mm. most of the time you'll be right. Mm. And so my experiences as a young child taught me that we don't know what people are going through yes. behind their smiles or frowns yes, or tears. And so if we try to seek them and see them as God sees them, then it just brings that empathy and love out for them and, and begins to... Um, kind of educate us on how we should treat them. Yes, that, that's powerful. So seeing someone, and I think I've heard a, a related quote, uh, everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Yeah, it's kind of that's exactly the same right. lines. I love that. So as you encounter, you know, here, if, if, for, you know, if you can picture uh, for our listeners in the studio um, here in Oakland, a, a wide range of, of people walking around, a you know, very, uh, very diverse setting, as you encounter people of different spiritual views and you know, of all walks of life, how does your faith apply and, and what does interfaith spirituality mean to you? So, at least here in the studio mm-hmm. um, at Enlisted, we... I can't imagine a more diverse group mm-hmm. from um, from all over the world, and um, and we've recruited designers really from every walks of life. For a long time, I was the only uh, Mormon here. I was not the only believer, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but I love that. I love that we we come together and um, and really celebrate what makes us tick. And the unique uh, perspective that we bring to a design problem or to our, you know, our culture here, and um, and we thrive in that. So, so what I love about that is it allows me to learn a lot when I'm on an airplane next to an employee, or when I'm on a walk with an employee, or whatever. I ask lots of questions mm-hmm. because I want to learn from them. And what I've learned is there's a certain set of spiritual tools that I grew up with that are wonderful. Say your prayers. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the primary answer. Say your prayers, read your scriptures, go to church, serve other people. Those are all wonderful things. 
But as I've grown up and as I've been exposed to other spiritual tools like 12-step addiction recovery, mm-hmm. like meditation, like the outdoors, yes, um, those have become significant spiritual tools uh, and, and have broadened my picture of God. And that comes from being as being one member of a very diverse group. Yes. So as a, as a person of faith who is, who is a boss, I mean, you, you operate in a collaborative way and and you've shared that. Have you ever had instances where someone was surprised that you perhaps had to correct them or, or manage them? Do people expect you just to be a nice guy or (laughs) have you had experiences where somebody seemed a little shocked that, uh, you know, that, that you had to direct them in a way they didn't expect? Oh, I think, you know, it, I think sometimes they're shocked when I don't <laughs> um, become aggressive, or I don't. You know, I'm I I am a nice guy, uh, but I expect a lot, mm-hmm. and I know that, and my team knows that, and um, and I hire just people who are um, believers in in what we're doing here, and they believe that we can do amazing work consistently, quickly, and so. Um, you know, that becomes very intense at times. And yeah, I mean, I've yelled and I've sworn and I've, you know, thrown things (laughs) and all of that stuff. Not, not so much recently, but in previous years. And so, you know, I think sometimes people are surprised, but, um, uh, but not too much. Yeah. So just full disclosure to our listeners, uh, I met Bo, our sons played baseball and basketball together, yeah. and I've experienced Bo's competitiveness on the basketball court firsthand. <laughs> and it, it, you know, it, it's fun, but I can yeah. definitely see how if you want another version of something or if it isn't quite right, how that could apply and, and make your company great. Yep. Definitely. And I am, I'm very competitive and I don't, I don't see, <laughs> I don't see competitiveness and spirituality at odds. Right? Say more about that. Um, depending on how I'm acting right now, if I just fly off the handle and I'm yelling at people and, you know, going crazy, then yes, of course I'm, I'm not acting in my best spiritual self. Um, but, uh, I, I think that there, for me, there's this constant desire to be better, Hmm. to play harder, to perform better, to be smarter, to be more knowledgeable and to grow. And that translates into my spiritual side. And it allows me to not be apathetic with my spiritual growth. And I've certainly had times where it dawns on me like, what, what, how, I'm not growing. I'm not growing spiritually. And, and, and I, and, and I, I guess I've lived long enough to know that if I don't choose to grow spiritually, then I'm going to get grown spiritually. And that's a lot more painful mm-hmm. than to choose to grow spiritually. And so my competitiveness comes in where it's not like I'm competing with others, but I'm competing with myself mm-hmm. in the sense that I want to grow. I want to learn. I want to know so that I never fall into the trap of spiritual apathy. Yes. Are there people in your life who hold you accountable on that? Of course. Yeah. My, my partner, my wife. I mean, that's, she knows me better than I know myself and she knows me better than anybody. Um, so the people who hold me accountable for my spirituality are, are my wife. Um, and I actually, I choose to send an email once a week to my now current Bishop who previously was my right hand man while I was Bishop. Mm. And every Sunday night I check in with him and I have a spiritual check-in. It's just a quick note to let him know how I'm doing. And so I have that accountability with my bishop. Now, 
nobody else that I know does this. I just do this. But I felt like I wanted to do that because I didn't want my spirituality to decrease after I was released as bishop. Yes. And so um, I, I hold myself accountable, accountable through him. And then also I hold myself, myself accountable with my 12-step uh, fellows. So I do a lot of 12-step addiction recovery work. And, um, and I have daily check-ins with them, with, with a certain kind of small group of fellows. Mm. So you, you've mentioned when you first walked into Academy of Art, you, you had this feeling and you'd found your calling. So do you encounter people with whom you work here who feel open to talk to you about their own sense of call? And, and you know, do you find yourself counseling them on, on career and faith matters? I do. Yeah, at times. Not everybody. Mm-hmm. Usually the people who've been here longer and we've been able to have um, some intense experiences together where we kind of show our true colors. And so we trust each other. Um, and there has to be some degree of vulnerability in order to broach those subjects. And sometimes uh, an employee's um, you know, loved one will pass away or um, you know, something, something will happen in their life that, um, that gives me an opportunity to just talk to them about it and let them know that I'm not afraid of talking about these things. In fact, I love it. Yes. Uh, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And that's totally okay. But we've had some great conversations. There was one in particular where um, one of my best employees, uh, you know, super dedicated, super talented, she and I were flying back from um, from Vietnam, and we have 14 hours together. Mm. And you're supposed to sleep on a 14-hour flight. <laughs> we talked for 14 hours. Wow. About faith, about family, about uh, work, about everything. And it was just awesome to be able to both give and receive counsel um, in that kind of trusting environment. So it, it feels like you are firing on all cylinders here from a, a faith and, and life perspective. Um, what are some things you still hope to accomplish in, in your personal, professional faith life? What, what goals that you're able to share yeah. uh, are still there for you? So I'll start with professional. Um, my professional goals is so so i've been super fortunate design to design some wonderful products and brands um, that have had significant growth in various categories from food to tech to you name it and and so i've i've had those um, those experiences and the design awards and all of that now we're i'm still seeking those but i'm now seeking them through my designers where i want them to design products that receive design awards. I want them to design packaging that fills the shelf at Whole Foods or whatever the thing is. And, and I want them to have those experiences that I've enjoyed early on in my career. And so though I do a lot of presenting still and a lot of, you know, face to face with my clients, um, my goals personally, or my goals professionally are to lift my team and enable them to, to grow and to become the designers that, that, you know, that they can become. So I'd say that's my biggest goal right now. You know, I, I don't have business goals of one day we're going to be a hundred people at enlisted. Mm -hmm. I have no interest in that. I really do want to position my company so that we can attract the right clients that are visionary and that want to change whatever category it is that they want to change and we want to partner with them to to make that happen. Per- personally, yes, I want to learn how to sleep. Mm. <laughs> um, 
either I, I generally go to sleep around midnight and then I start tossing and turning around four and I'm up by five. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and lo- most days I'm up before my alarm goes off, just waiting for my alarm to go off. And I think it's just my mind spinning. Mm-hmm. It's the, um, it's either the excitement of the day. It's the problems that I'm trying to solve. And each day I kind of, you know, my alarm finally goes off. I get on my knees and, and I, I start my day with a morning prayer and I view each day as a puzzle. Mm. And some of the pieces are face up and some of the pieces are face down and I don't see them yet. And I'm just trying to connect all the pieces so that it can, you know, ultimately be a a really good picture. (laughs) Yeah. How, uh, last question for today, Bo, how do you define success? I define success on a daily basis by knowing that I did everything I could today uh, to do what was right. And it seems like as each of those days kind of build on each other, uh, it, uh, it begins to create this tapestry. And sometimes those are, you know, I, I have bad days where I just don't accomplish anything I needed to. And then I have a lot of good days where I do get to. And usually those accomplishments are, are allowing others to, to rise up and to do good work. And so, you know, at the end of my life, I, I don't know how I'm going to define success. Uh, the things that really are going to, that matter to me most, as important as all of this is with Enlisted, things that matter to me most are that my family is, is together and that we enjoy each other and, um, and that I'm creating an environment here at work that these are ultimately going to be the glory years for my employees. We're sure they're going to move on. They're going to go to other studios or start their own studios, but they're going to look back on these enlisted years as, you know, those were the years. Those were the good years. Excellent. Bo Euler, thank you for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for making time to listen today. I'm grateful to Bo for sharing his story with us. Coming up in future episodes, you'll hear from venture capitalists who are sharing their entrepreneurial skills at San Quentin Prison and a tech founder who nearly lost his company over one error in 300,000 lines of code. I invite you to subscribe to Beyond the Check and leave a review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite service. I'm John Weems. Until next time, keep living and working Beyond the Check. <laughs>